Let's pray together. Father, our expectations are, I'm sure, very inadequate for what you intend to do here this weekend. And so would you lift them so that our prayers would not be too small. There are people that are going to have their lives turned upside down this weekend. Thirty years from now, they will look back and these songs, these scriptures will have been the pivotal point of guidance. And I tremble at such a thought. What a glorious thought. Some are not born again in this room and will come to life. And some are straying and will passionately come home. And some are on the edge of their seats to see Christ and will never see Him the same again. So God, through every aspect of this weekend, come. We together right now resist the devil in the name of Jesus. And claim the promise that he will flee from us now. So help me to be faithful to your word. And give your people hearts to hear and understand. I pray in Christ's great name. Amen. Jonathan Edwards historically is the inspiration for this gathering and I should just tell you that that makes being here a double honor not only because it's an honor to speak to you and be in your land but Jonathan Edwards and one book in particular has had a greater influence on me probably than any other dead teacher outside the Bible. And the book I have in mind is called The End for Which God Created the World. If I could choose, I think, apart from the Bible, one book that sums up everything I have to say in life, it's Jonathan Edwards' book, The End for Which God Created the World. The messages you're going to hear from me would be messages that if Jonathan Edwards were in the room, he would recognize. He would say, I said that. I didn't say it that way, but I, I said that. And I would say, I know, that's where I got it. After I tested it by the Bible. So you should know there's no accident between the historical inspiration of this conference and my presence here, I consider it amazingly, wonderfully an honor to represent Jonathan Edwards and say to you, I think, what he would want said in this context. And so here's the way it's going to go, if God wills. The reason that you exist, I'll put it in a sentence, and it's the summary of all three messages. The reason you exist is to share in and to share God's passion for His glory. I say that without any fear of contradiction whatsoever concerning any of you. The reason you exist is to share in and to share God's passion for God. Now, there's a simpler, less controversial, more acceptable way of saying that. And I'll say it, and then I'll say why I don't say it that way. I, I could say, the reason you exist is to love God and love people. And everybody would say, no controversy, 
No shock, no emotion, no energy, no wonder, no awe, no anger, no emotional response, just an intellectual agreement, and uh, I hope the next speaker says something fresh. Even though saying that you exist to love God and love people is a thunderously awesome thing to say, but nobody responds that way anymore. There are three great realities in either of those sentences. The, the, the one that's uncontroversial and straightforward and acceptable and the one that I said. And the three great realities are God, love for God, and love for people. And nobody understands those to very much depth. We just hear those words and, okay, now tell me something practical. Tomorrow afternoon I can do. The word God, if we saw the reality behind it, you wouldn't be sitting there. You would be flat on your face. You would be so stunned, so in awe, so frightened, so amazed. And love for God? Does anybody know what that is? And love for people? Does anybody know what that is? We are so infected by the world that we interpret love for God in ways that are unbelievably man-centered. And we interpret love for other people in such a way that God is scarcely on the agenda, just their minds or bellies. I don't think the world, the church, in America, Europe, Africa, know much about God. I don't think I know much about God. But oh, I want to know. I want to know Him. I'm so thin and I want to love Him in a way that he recognizes that's what I meant. And I want to love people, not in a way that gets any worldly attraction, but a way that causes God to say, that's what I meant. That's the kind of love for people that I had in mind. That's what I care about. And I feel like a baby. So I want to go behind the words. God, love for God, love for people. Those are the three messages. So let me state the first sentence again, the one that I think needs explaining and unpacking. Um, you exist to share in and to share God's passion for God's glory. You exist to share in and to share God's passion for the glory of God. So that has three parts. God's passion for the glory of God. The reason I'm using this language is because in my mind, if you don't get God's passion for the glory of God, you don't get God. So all talk of loving God, all talk of loving people is meaningless. And the reason I say you are here to share in God's passion for God is because that's the meaning of love for God. And if you don't get that, you don't love Him. You do it already, even though you may not use that language. If you're a Christian, you love Him this way. It is you share in His enjoyment of Himself. That's what the Holy Spirit does. God comes in 
And the Holy Spirit is the Trinitarian love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father. And that carries so much of the Father and so much of the Son that He stands forth as a third person. And when He comes as the love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for the Father into your life and fills you, what do you do but love the Father and love the Son with the energy of God who is the Holy Spirit? This is what love is. This is, this is God enjoying God in you and through you. Then, if you ask what love for God is, it's your heart entering into that, saying, yes, Father, you are magnificent. Yes, Son, you are magnificent. You are my treasure. You are supremely satisfying to me. And that's the Holy Spirit's work in your life. And then the question is, all right, now what does it mean to love people? And to love people is to take that and do whatever you can at the cost of your life to get it into other people's hearts so that they are satisfied in God now and forever. That's why you're on the planet. So, three messages. God, love for God, and love for people. So, tonight's message is God. That is, God's zeal for God. God's love for the glory of God. That's where we're going. And, and just try, even, even though, for some of you anyway, this is going to sound so new and so different from some of what you've been taught about the nature of God, that your first reaction is going to be, that is weird. And I'm just pleading with you, test it by the Bible. I'm going to give you a lot of Bible. I don't give a rip about what I think, and you shouldn't either. I care very deeply what this book says. God speaks, I learn. And if I don't get it, it's not his problem. It's my problem. Same with you. So if, if it's here, believe it. And then spend the rest of your life trying to understand and grow into it. Let me give you a quiz. You shouldn't answer out loud. Though after the first question, you'd get them all right. Because they're all the same question expressed in different ways. So here's my quiz. There are five questions. Number one, just think, answer in your head. Who is the most God-centered person in the universe? Think. Answer, God is. Second question. Who is uppermost in God's affections? Answer, God is. Third question. Is God an idolater? Answer, no. He has no other God besides himself. Fourth, what is God's chief jealousy? Answer, to be known and admired and trusted and enjoyed and obeyed and treasured above all. And fifth, what is the chief end of God? Answer, the chief end of God is to glorify God and enjoy himself forever. That's tonight's message. Now, if you ask, why in the world do you mess with the Westminster Catechism? I mean, it's a good catechism. And it begins, what's the chief end of man? And it answers, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And you, you mess with it and say, what is the chief end of God? Why do you do that? They didn't do that. You smarter than the Westminster divines? And here's the reason. They could take something for granted in the 1600s that we cannot take for granted. I cannot take for granted. In fact, 
for most human beings on planet Earth today, it is incomprehensible, not just to be taken for granted. Namely, that God is more valuable than man. They took that for granted. They didn't have to draw that out. I do, because very few of you feel that. We are, for the last 200 years at least, taught from every angle on the planet that we are center. And God better shape up. What with these avalanches and hurricanes and floods and famines and he better get his act together because we don't like what he's doing. We are central in our affections. Man is supreme. Man is the central value in the universe for 99% of human beings. And therefore, I can't assume the truth. Namely, man is not the center. Man is not more valuable than God. God is 10 million times more valuable than all men put together in all of history. If you put God in this side of the scales and 6 billion times 10,000 human beings in this side of the scale, it goes down. These are like dust in the scales. Isaiah says it's like drops from a bucket compared to the glory of Almighty God, Creator of heaven and earth, who's been here forever and ever and ever and created us by the snap of His finger, could put us out of existence by the snap of His finger. Until we have a sense that God is supreme, God is infinitely valuable, and compared to us, we are nothing, He is everything. Until you bring that to the Westminster Catechism, you're going to need another starting place, and I'm trying to give it to you tonight. Until our deepest joy becomes participation in God's God-centeredness, we will remain in bondage to self. Here's, here's a, a sixth test question. Do you feel more loved by God because He makes much of you? Or do you feel more loved by God because He, at great cost to Himself, frees you to make much of Him? The world divides on that question. The church divides on that question. Make no mistake, believer, God makes much of you. Oh, if I had another sermon, a fourth sermon. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also, what? Glorified. Do you know what that means? He will make you glorious. He's doing it right now. It's called sanctification. That's why sanctification isn't in the list. Did you ever ask that question? Why doesn't it say, those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom He justified, He sanctified. And those whom He sanctified, He glorified. Why doesn't it say that? Because glorification has begun. And it's called sanctification now. And glorification when it's finished. And it means you're going to shine like the sun in the kingdom of your Father. And you will be tempted to bow down and worship one another. You will be so magnificent. So make no mistake. God makes much of His children. But, you will not understand the meaning of what it is to be glorious as a human. Nor will you be able to enter into what it is to be gloriously human until that is not your chief delight. But rather, 
being enabled by that glorification to see Him for who He is and find Him to be your supreme treasure and your heart's satisfaction. God knows He is that for you. And therefore, He constantly, without fail, holds up His glory as the supreme value in the universe. So, what should we do next in this message? Well, we should open our Bibles. So I'm going to spend all the rest of our time, except for a brief summary, going from text to text to hammer you with this truth. Or better, pour this blessed truth over your head. <laughs> I don't know what it's going to feel like to you. It feels to me like a waterfall of grace. I do believe that God's all-sufficient totally satisfied joy in himself is the fountain of grace. And then until we see it that way, we will be resisting grace. So, let's walk through the Bible. Now, I don't think I'm going to leave you enough time to look them all up. I'm going to say them, read them, and comment on them. You can write them down, or you can... Look them up. I've put this list in I don't know how many books. This is not new. This list is not new. So they're out there. And I'm going to just choose what we have time for. When I was growing up, this is a preface to the list. When I was growing up, my wonderful godly father probably, that's probably an overstatement, but one of the most common texts that I heard come out of his mouth toward me in council and our family was, Johnny, whatever you do, son, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. My father loved the glory of God. He never said sentences like this. <laughs> he never preached a sermon like this. But I think the roots were all there. I think that's why I preached this way. But I never heard him say, after he said, the reason, son, that you should do all for the glory of God is that God does all for the glory of God. I, I, I never heard him say that. That's what I say all the time. Because it's the only thing I know to do to shake you out of your slumbers of man-centeredness. It, it rustles the feathers. It sounds like God's a megalomaniac. It does. It does. I've seen it written in the London Financial Times. People are saying it on the university campuses, Don Carson says, in his typical missions that he gives. What kind of God you got that's got to get praise all the time? Demanding that people worship him all the time. Has he got some need? Some ego trip? So I'm pushing this. Yes, that's the kind of text we're bumping into. So let's look at them. I'm just going to walk you right through redemptive history. And here's what I'm after. I want you to, to answer whether these texts are pointing to what I have said in the last 10 or 15 minutes. Is God... Radically God-centered. Is God in love with the glory of God? Is God passionate for His perfections in these texts? Okay, here we go. Before creation, let's start in eternity, there was this reality of election or predestination. It's already been read. I'm going to read it again from Ephesians 1 for following. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, He predestined us in love to be His sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, unto the praise of the glory of His grace. 
Do you see where it was all leading? Why were we chosen? Why were we predestined? Why were we adopted? Why does he have the purpose of his will doing all of that? Why? Verse 6. Unto the praise of the glory of his grace. He chose me for the praise of the glory of his grace. He adopted me for the praise of the glory of his grace. He predestined me for the praise of the glory of his grace. He is doing it all that he be praised. That he be praised. This is God acting. This is not my father saying, John, make sure you do that. This is God doing that. Then he created the world and everything in it. Isaiah 43, verse 6. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. God made you for God's glory. Now, that's an ambiguous statement. It does not mean God made you so that he would become more glorious. It means God made you so that you would reflect back to him and display to the world how glorious he already is. He made people... Have you ever asked? I'm sure you have. What does it mean in Genesis 1.27? God created them male and female in his own image what's that mean and we we wrestle and argue about well it means they got morality and animals don't and they got rationality and animals don't and they got relational capacities and animals don't and things like that well that's probably all true there's a there's a simpler and more important answer Images are created to image. What? God. I'm making you in my image. Do that. Do that. Are you doing that? Do people look at your life and read, God is great. Jesus is all satisfying. Jesus is worth living and dying for. Is that the message? Are you imaging that? That's what you exist for. Images exist to image. So, predestination for His glory. Creation for His glory. Then, God calls a people to Himself called Israel. Calls Abraham. And he works with them for 2,000 years. Why did he do it that way? Well, there's so many answers to that question. And God is so... You read Romans 9 to 11, you say, You are a complex God. You are a God who doesn't believe in straight lines at all. You are taking detours all over the place. You're going round in circles. And they're going in and out and up and down. And Where are you heading? And there are sentences that clarify it all. Like this one. This would be... Isaiah 49, 3. You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Or, Jeremiah 13, 11. I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, says the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. That's why he chose Israel. That makes sense of all the pieces. Everything that happened to Israel happened because he chose them to be a name and a praise and a glory for God in the earth. He did it for himself. One of the great acts in saving Israel was the Exodus. Jews 
celebrate the Exodus more than they celebrate anything, and rightly so. It was meant to be an occasion of worship. Why did he do it? Why did he go down into Egypt, and not with one plague, or two plagues, or three plagues, but ten plagues? He could have started with number ten. Could have. Why did he do it, and why did he do it that way? Here's Psalm 106, verse 7. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider thy wonderful works, but rebelled against the Most High at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. God is getting a name for himself at the Red Sea. Or, here's another one. This one is um, Romans 9.17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for this very purpose of showing my power in you so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. I want my name known. This is God talking. It's not just Johnny listening to Daddy saying, make his name known, son. This is God making his name known. And just to give you a little window of where I'm going, how did Rahab the harlot in Jericho get saved? Because God did this. That's what she said. We have heard of you and how you dried up the sea. And I want to know this God and I don't want to be judged. And evangelism happened as God magnified his name in the earth and salvation came to a prostitute and her family. I'm going towards good news, folks. I'm going towards the deepest ground of the gospel you've ever seen in your life. That's what I'm trying to do here. They went into the wilderness and man, did they make a mess of it. Over and over again, they grumbled. He'd do a great and glorious thing for them and then they'd grumble. Just filled with doubt and unbelief and irreverence and desire to throw the gift back in his face and go back to Egypt. What did he do? He should have just wiped them out, right? He was going to wipe them out. Why didn't he wipe them out? Ezekiel 20, verse 13. I acted for my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. They deserve to be wiped out. My name deserves to be ex exalted. I'm not wiping my people out. I'm magnifying my name, even in patience and forgiveness. They came into the promised land and conquered it. Why? Why did God do that? 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 23. What other nation on earth is like thy people Israel, who God went to redeem to be his people, making a name for himself and doing great and terrible things by driving out the people of the nations before them and their gods. Making a name for himself. That's why he took them into the land. These people, just like us, eventually decided they wanted to be like the nations and have a king. Remember that story? We want a king! I'm your king! God says. And Samuel has to deliver this message to God. They want a king! And, and God says, I know they want a king. It's not against you, they've rebelled. They've rebelled against me. I'm going to give them a king. You go tell them and listen, listen to this amazing 1 Samuel 12, 
20 to 22, why the Lord did this amazing work of not destroying these people. Fear not. This is 1 Samuel 12, 20. Fear not. You have done all this evil. Does that sound strange to you? That's backwards. Should be fear. You have done all this evil. But this is, this is the gospel coming into being. This is the introduction of grace all through the Bible and what's underneath grace. What is underneath grace? You tell me what's underneath grace in this verse. Fear not. You have done all this evil. Yet, do not turn aside from following the Lord. Dropping down to verse 22. For the Lord will not cast away his people for his great name's sake. I'm not going to wipe them out for my name's sake. Even though they've asked for a king. And just a little parenthesis here. The Messiah came from these kings. The Messiah to save the world came from the sinful installation of a king. And there are many stories in your life like that, are there not? God turning the mess you made into hope. The very mess, the very mess becomes a place of hope. That's, that's a parenthesis. They come back from Babylon. I'm jumping, you see, forward. They've been sent in judgment into Babylon. They come back. Why? Why, why does he spare them and bring them back? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read for you now, I think, the two most densely God-centered verses in the Bible. All right? Here they go. This is um, Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. I guess it's three verses. For my name's sake, watch these six. I'm going to hold my fingers up. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not like silver. I have tried you in the furnace of afflictions. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For my name will not be profaned. My glory I will not give to another. That's six times in those three verses. That's why I think it's the most densely God-exalting, God-exalting God verses in the Bible. For my name's sake. For the sake of my praise, for my own sake, for my own sake. How should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. You can't miss that point. God is passionate for God's glory. Jesus now appears in the world. Oh my Why did he come? Behold, I bring you good news. For unto you this day in the city of David is born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find the baby lying in a manger wrapped in swaddling cloths. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God! Not, what a treasure man must be that God would come to save him like this. When you are saved, angels say, glory to God. 
when a Savior comes into the world like a little baby lying in the manger and lives a perfect life and dies a horrid death to save sinners, angels say, glory to God. Shouldn't we? Should we find in Jesus an echo of our inestimable worth? And don't forget what I said about him making much of you. Just get it right. Get it in order. At the end of the age, he's coming again. Why? Why is he coming? I'll read it to you. By the way, that was Luke 10. 2.10, if you're writing things down. Luke chapter 2, verse 10 following. Okay, here we are, Second Thessalonians. This is the end of history. This is the goal of it all. Second Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. Describing what happens to unbelievers and believers as the great king returns. And maybe he'll land in South Africa. I suspect somehow, if you're his, you'll see it. And maybe in our lifetime, wouldn't that be breathtaking? So here's what it says. It's going to happen. These will pay the penalty, these are the unbelievers, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. When He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. It's coming for two reasons. To be glorified and to be marveled at. So if you interview Jesus in the clouds, why are you here? I'm here to get praise. I'm here to get glory. I'm here to be marveled at. Which is why the world stumbles on university campuses. Why? Who talks like that? Now, Discerning people among you are uncomfortable with an omission in my trek through history. <laughs> and you should be very uncomfortable and say, I can't believe he's finished. Well, I'm not. What, what have I left out in my trek through history? The most important event that has happened will ever happen. Christ died for sinners. Why? Now, if you have a Bible, I do want you to open them. Romans chapter 3. We are going to look at the most important chapter, paragraph in the Bible. Just briefly. Just briefly. And Conrad and Bewey, if you want to unpack this in one of your messages... That would be glorious, but you got your plan. I have no idea what it is. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to be light on this because I'll just, I'd be happy for you to take it. Okay, here we are in Romans 3. Let's start, I know it's kind of the middle of a sentence, middle of a verse. Let's start in the middle of verse 22. There is no distinction. Are you with me? Middle of verse 22. No difference, no distinction. Now, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that is, declared righteous and just in God's eyes, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, that is, he sent him for this. He put him forward as a, and I think we should use this word, as a propitiation, big word that means he removed God's wrath against our sin and against us. Put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. 
That's why he died. To show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance or patience, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who simply has faith in Jesus. Now a few, just a very few clarifying comments. It starts with verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I think when you take those two together, sin falls short of the glory of God, what you get is a definition of sin. Fall short of may not be the right or best or clearest translation. The word is lack. All have sinned and lack the glory of God. Well, lack, lack. In what sense? I think in the sense of chapter 1, verse 23. 3.23 is explained by 1.23. And what 1.23 says is that human beings have exchanged the glory of God for the glory of images, especially the one in the mirror. And when you exchange God's glory, which is given to you as your highest treasure and deepest satisfaction, for another one, whether it's an idol out here or what, or the idol in the mirror, you sin. All sinning is feeling, thinking, speaking, and doing that flows from that exchange. Not treasuring God supremely. Overall. Or another way to say it is that all sin flows from idolatry. So, when sin happens, God is defamed. Right? God creates you to be satisfied with His glory, love His glory, treasure His glory, reflect His glory, and when we all sin, and we all have... We blackball God, we scorn God, we refuse God, and we turn around and we dig empty cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water, and we try to satisfy ourselves with other things. And what could be more defaming to the name of God than to prefer anything to God? Every time we prefer something to God, we defame God's glory. We belittle God's glory. Second observation. God's righteousness, if you really think it to the bottom, is He's doing what's right. And if you say, well, what's right for God? He has no book to obey. He writes the book. So what's right for God? Answer. Doing all things so as to reflect that he values what is infinitely valuable. Infinitely. I'll say it again. When God faces the question, this is a little bit anthropomorphic, but Deal with it. When, when, when God faces the question, what is right for me to do? The bottom answer is, act according to your infinite worth. If you act as though you are not infinitely valuable, you tell a lie. And it's wrong to lie. All right, that's what I'll do. He's talking to himself. God does what's right, and what's right is what magnifies the infinite worth of God, which means sin belittles God. How will God magnify God over against man who does nothing but belittle him? Answer, hell. Or... Christ. That's what this text says. 
Let's read it. Verse 25, near the end. This bloodshedding, this horrible, horrible killing of the pure, infinite, all-glorious Son of the living God was to show God is righteous, meaning He upholds the worth of His glory. We all trample it. Millennia after millennia of His creatures trampling His glory in almost every act of their lives. How shall any of them not go to hell to pay eternally for that infinite outrage? Answer, Christ's blood settles the issue for all who are in Him. Namely, God's glory is worth this much. You will either pay in hell or be in Christ who paid at Calvary. God's righteousness will be vindicated in unbelievers suffering forever and in believers benefiting from the infinite loss of glory in the cross. Why did He come to die? He came to die so that God's righteousness might be vindicated. This is said explicitly in the phrase, this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Well, why do you need, why do you, there are people today all over the world who would say, this is crazy. The God I have doesn't need to prove his righteousness because he passed over sins. Passing over sins is what God is supposed to do. And we get mad at him if he doesn't. That's the opposite of the problem Paul is solving here. Paul is solving the problem is, how can God be righteous and save you? How can God be righteous and pass over David's sin? I mean, you understand, David, I mean, when it says he passed over former sins, he's thinking about Abraham and David. I think David, mainly. <laughs> okay, so David, when he's supposed to be out fighting the battle with Uriah, he's horny on his roof. And, and he sees this naked woman next door. And he, I mean, he's the king. He can do whatever he wants. So he sends for her. He sleeps with her. And, and sends her home. And she's pregnant. And oh my. Now I've got a problem. You've got a problem. You already had a problem. But now he's got another problem. So he sends for her husband who's valiantly fighting for the king. I mean, this is a horrible story. I hate David at this point. Ooh. Of course, I'm not God. God. God didn't get rid of him. I would have. So obviously you shouldn't follow me. So Uriah comes and, and David sends him home to sleep with his wife so everybody will think it's his baby. And he won't go in and sleep with her because his comrades are on the battlefield and he's going to be a valiant lover of the king. So he gets him drunk and it doesn't even work. And so he says to Joab, look, make sure he gets killed when you attack the next city. Joab does what the king says. He gets killed. He marries Bathsheba. Nathan the prophet is sent to David, right? And he comes and tells him a little parable. This man who had lots of sheep and he had a guest. Instead of killing one of his sheep to feed him, he went to his poor neighbor next door. You hear the analogy? Poor neighbor took the one sheep the guy had, killed the sheep, fed. And he's telling David this story. And David said, that man is guilty. That man should be punished. And Nathan, taking his life in his hands, this is what prophets do all the time, points his finger right in David's face and says, you're the man. 
And by grace, David confessed his sin. And you know what the next thing was out of Nathan's mouth? God has taken away your sin. Just like that? Come on. What if you were Uriah's dad? What if you were Bathsheba's mom? You just couldn't have let this off? What kind of a judge is that? That is one unjust, evil judge. That's the problem Paul is solving in Romans 3. And you all have it. Because if you went before a king in Johannesburg, I mean before a judge, a judge in Johannesburg, and, and somebody had raped your daughter, killed, and the judge said, we'll just let it go. Every moral fiber in your being would say, no, what kind of a judge are you? That's God they're talking to. He passed over former sins. The reason you are breathing is because he's that kind of God. You'd have been in hell a long time ago if he weren't that kind of God. How can he be that way? How can God be just and just pass over all your sins? Answer. Let's just read it. Just believe what's in the Bible. This bloodshedding of the Son of God was to show God is righteous. And he had to show it because in divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It's to show he's righteous at the present time when he justifies the ungodly by faith alone. I tell you, we got the best news in all the world. We have the best news in all the world that God justifies the ungodly by faith alone. And all I'm trying to do is put power underneath it and make it absolutely unshakable. It is not based on your worth. It's based on God's worth and that cannot be shaken. You'll doubt yours all the time. You won't ever have to doubt God's infinite worth. And when you see that all grace and all salvation and all God's patience and all of His kindness and all of His tenderness and all of His friendliness is based on His massive commitment to His name and His glory, you got a foundation that cannot be shaken. That's all I'm trying to do. I want to help you love, that's tomorrow, God and love people. I think you should be the most radical lovers of people. The most sacrificial, most risk-taking lovers of people on the planet. That comes from the gospel, and the gospel I'm trying to show tonight has a foundation under it that is deeper than you ever dreamed, broader than you ever dreamed, higher than you ever dreamed, more unshakable than you ever dreamed, namely God's commitment to God. And if you've never heard that before, just spend the rest of your life thinking about it. That's all I do. I just think about it. And I, I told Matt when we were walking out the door tonight, I said, Matt, I've given this kind of message 50 times, and I've seen new things. I've seen new things. I, I, I'm going to say it in some new ways. I love this truth. Well, let me close like this. Um, why isn't God a megalomaniac in relentlessly magnifying his own perfections and lifting them up? And the answer is because this is not megalomania, this is love. Because you were made to be infinitely happy in God, in the beauty of God, the perfections of God, the attributes of God. If God doesn't preserve the worth, preserve the honor, uphold all of that, He will rob you of what alone can give you everlasting joy. God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation 
is the highest virtue and the clearest manifestation of love. Because you were made to be satisfied in him. He must be infinitely valuable for your soul to be satisfied in him. He cannot, in some kind of mock humility, deny that he is infinitely delightful. You would be robbed of what your soul was made to enjoy and treasure. I've been saying this in the last two years a little differently. I'm going to close by giving you my new, my new angle on this that I hope, I hope removes some obstacles and helps some of you. And it goes something like this. I now ask this question. Why does God, who, who loves us so much and will one day make so much of us, creating us, dying for us, adopting us, giving us life, one day making us so glorious we will shine like the sun? Why does God, who, who loves us so much and makes so much of us, perform all of his acts of love for us in such a way as to make much of him. And right here, the difference between the non-born again person in this room and the born again person in this room, right here, the ways are going to divide. If you feel really glad he did it that way, Yes, He loved me for His sake. He loved me for His name. He loved me for His glory. If, if that is beating in your heart, you are very likely born again. And if you say, I don't like that, I want to be central. I want to be the end point. You have a very, very deep, deep problem. Why does he do it this way? The answer is this. Loving you in such a way as to make much of him is greater love than if he loved you to make much of you. It's greater love than if he made you your end rather than making him your end. Why is that? Because... This self that he would then be making much of, this you that he would make the ultimate treasure of your life so that your salvation was to finally love with perfect love what you see in the mirror. If that were your salvation, you would not be loved and you would not be happy because the self, no matter how glorious it is forever, can never satisfy a heart made for God. God loves you too much to make you the end of you. Of course, you have to be okay with being given an infinite treasure rather than having the paltry one in the mirror. You have to be okay with that. But many rebel because self is all. And they won't have a sovereign, all-satisfying, infinitely glorious God as their treasure above all things. So, take heart in this. Rejoice in this. Be strengthened by this. You, I speak to believers, and those I would love to be believers, you are precious to God. And He loves you so much, He will do everything from predestination to consummation to keep you from making your preciousness your treasure. He will do everything to make himself your treasure. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that I would be first understood. 
And if there is at any point where my exposition is out of accord or even out of balance with the scriptures and their emphases, correct that. And wherever I have spoken truth, as I have tried to do, would you, Holy Spirit, right now, perform a massive experiential confirmation in the lives of these people. May Christ shine as our propitiator, redeemer, savior, and may your name be vindicated in our lives as the supreme treasure of all. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.